All right. Well, thank you, everybody, so much for joining us for FDR Boot Camp number the second. Uh, this is going to be the uh, one on the social contract. So, of course, the social contract is something that uh, libertarians and anarchists of all stripes and hues and uh, 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 plaids uh, run up against all the time, and I thought it might be worthwhile. I'll try playing devil's advocate for the social contract position, after which I shall have a long shower. But I will try taking the position of stone evil uh, and seeing if we can't um, uh, find a, a good ways to, to counter the arguments. So with that having been said, I'll do, give a short introduction to the typical way that the social contract is, uh, is brought into a conversation. And the first aspect is that people say something like this. So in a state of nature... When there's no government, there's no society as a whole, there's no tribe, when we are, so to speak, au natural, there is perfect freedom, perfect liberty. We don't have to pay any taxes. We don't have to obey any laws. We don't have to stay on the right side of the road. We, we can, uh, you know, dogs living with cats, anything can, can happen. But uh, that is, of course, nature red in tooth and claw. Uh, life is nasty, brutish, and short, as uh, Hobbes would say. And so what we do is we get together as a community, as a society, as a tribe, as a group, and we say, okay, you know, this perfect freedom thing is real nice in theory, but unfortunately, it ends up with a fairly large degree of uh, violence, uh, uh, of uh, war of all against all, of a grabbing for resources, and, and so on. So what we're going to do is we're going to get together as a community, and we're going to agree that we are going to surrender certain rights in order to get a hold of or to maintain greater peace and equality. So we're going to give up the right to uh, grab whatever property we want, to wage war against each other, and we're going to live having given up certain of our rights in order to maintain greater uh, peace and tranquility within our society. So the libertarian position, which says that the social contract is bad or wrong or invalid, is, is only correct if you can't leave the tribe uh, or if the social contract is being imposed uh, through some sort of outsider and uh, the abrogation of or the giving up of certain rights in order to maintain other rights is a necessary part. We have to give up certain property rights in the realm of taxation in order to be able to maintain all of our other property rights. There's no such thing as 100% property rights because if you have 100% property rights, uh, society devolves back into a war of all against all. There's no uh, social contract. And so we do give up certain liberties in order to, uh, to maintain the remaining liberties, but we still end up with a far greater amount of liberty thereby. So we can analogize it to uh, you don't have to have a job. Uh, I guess you could be a beggar on the streets and so on, but we all generally find that we have more uh, liberty when we give up eight hours a day in order to secure liberty for the weekends, so to speak. So we end up with greatest financial security, a greater life satisfaction if we give up certain freedoms in order to uh, defend and justify all the remaining freedoms. So that's a, a very brief introduction to the social contract. We certainly do need to have the ability to leave and to find a more compatible social contract. Uh, we don't. It's not a valid social contract if you're in North Korea and it's uh, forbidden for you to leave. It's not a valid social contract if it's imposed from outside. And it's also not a valid social contract if there's no mechanism by which the people can decide to renew or change that contract. But, of course, in a modern democracy, the contract can be changed and renewed and altered 
when uh, societies uh, find it important enough. So if you feel the social contract needs to be changed, you can get involved in politics, you can get involved in writing, you can get involved in public speaking, and you can change the social contract. And that's happened many times throughout history. We have a social contract now that uh, disapproves of slavery, approves of equal rights for women and minorities, and, and has rights for children, and, and uh, disallows for uh, child labor and so on. So the social contract is a fluid and flexible Contract, But as long as we live in a society and choose to stay there, then we are bound by that social contract and we must obey that social contract. And if we find elements of it uh, uh, absolutely uh, um, uh, can't be stood, we can't stand them, then we either change uh, to another location or we work to change that, that system. But that is the essence of the social contract argument. So who would like to, uh, to take a stab at uh, uh, bringing that leviathan down, so to speak? Jump in. Don't make me edit this. It's video. I hate editing video. <laughs> or would you like Saki the hand puppet to take it? Oh, remember to unmute yourself. Right. So are we taking the uh, the pro or the con here? Uh, I'll take the pro. Uh, you take the amateur. <laughs> Just kidding. You take the con. You take the con. <laughs> okay. So, oh dear, uh, Christina's shaking your head. That's pretty good. We're only a few minutes in, and that's already happening. That's nice. already yeah. Against the social contract, essentially, is what you're asking for. Yes. Okay. Um, do you owe uh, your parents anything for your birth? Well, I don't think that would fall under the social contract. Um, that would fall under, I guess, more uh, a theory of family relations or reciprocal um, ethics. ethics. Right. But just as an analogy, um, in the same way that you don't really owe your parents for your own birth, you don't owe the people around you uh, that call themselves whatever country they call themselves for the accident of your existence in that country, right? Well, I think that you know, we certainly can't blame someone in Minnesota for someone who's born in, in Ohio. I would absolutely agree with that. I'm not sure what relevance that would have to the social contract, but I certainly contract. am happy to exceed that point. I'll concede that point. I'll concede well, that point. The, so the social contract is basically an implicit obligation, right? And an implicit unchosen obligation. You know, by accident of where you're born and when you're born, you owe the people around you for your existence. If that makes any sense? No, that's, it's not that we owe no, for our existence, and it's not entirely accidental. The social contract really only kicks in when you become an adult, because before that you're under the uh, dominion of your parents. The social contract kicks in when you have an adult, when you have the choice about which community you wish to live in. Okay, but if you're making a choice, then it's not really... Um, I mean, the choices you're making are uh, voluntary, right? Sure. So then um, the contracts you're engaging in aren't really uh, social in the collectivist sense. They're entirely individual, right? So if I choose to live in a particular community, say a community that has um, um, uh, like... like um, what do they call those? Um, a commune? Uh, <laughs> um, 
Um, you know, where you, you have to sign a, a contract full of conditions in order to purchase a home. One of oh, those like a condo agreement or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you're engaging in an agreement with individuals on a voluntary basis in order to live there. So it's not really a social contract in the sense that um, you don't have a choice. Well, right? sure, but so, you, you, well, you could imagine that if you are born into, and we'll into, just take this example, right? So you're born into a condo, uh, you are not immediately unbound from the condo agreement, right? The condo agreement is between the people who own the condo or the people who, you know, run the building and the pe and the people who live in it. So if you're born into a, it's not like you're no longer abound uh, 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 by that condo agreement if you're born into a condo. And it's the same thing if you're born into a country. I mean, if you but don't like, like, you, I mean, if you don't like those, then you can go live some other place, right? Uh, but right. Uh, uh, if you're going to live in that condo, you do have to abide by the rules and, and that's just the deal of being born into a particular uh, uh, group. Right, but uh, but you said earlier that um, um, it doesn't apply to children, so I'm not sure what you meant by. Well, being I mean that's born. why. You well, I mean that's why. When, when you, if you're born into a condo, your parents are responsible for you following the condo rules. When you become 18, you're responsible yourself. Let's say your parents die when you're 18 and they leave you the condo, you don't get to then say, well, this not. I'm not going to abide by these rules because that, those are the conditions of living in the condo building. And, and if you don't like them, you can sell the condo, you can move elsewhere, you can find a better condo, or you can go live in the woods or whatever. But if you're going to live in that condo, if you're going to live in that society, these are the rules that you have to obey. Right. And then they're not like right. really yeah, restrictive or anything. It's like don't kill, don't steal, uh, you know, contribute something towards uh, keeping the hallways clean and all the collective stuff that goes on. Uh, you know, don't uh, don't dump your garbage in the hallway. I mean, reasonable things that uh, is, is to be expected from living in a community uh, is is where, um, you know, but if there's some esoteric rule that you don't like, you want to become a Wiccan and sacrifice cats in your living room, cats. then you have to go find some place that'll let you do that or set up your own yeah. condo or go live in the woods, as I said. Or or live in, or purchase a home with a large enough lot and in an area that doesn't have um, property restrictions, which is sure. also I mean I, sure. I guess that could be the case for sure. All right, so I, I guess I guess what I'm trying to understand is um, what in your mind is the distinction between that and the social contract. Well, this is a metaphor for the social contract, right? Living in a condo is living in a community. Right. Okay, so there's really no difference between the two. Well, I, I don't want to get into all of the differences between the two because that would be a complicated discussion, but discussion. I would say that it's a reasonable analogy to start with. Well, there has to be at least some distinction that's important. Otherwise why even have a thing called a social contract? Well, why don't you tell me how it's unreasonable for people who uh, have a condo building to impose rules upon those who live within the condo, a conditional upon them not forcing you to stay, and also that you get a voice in the condo board uh, if you want to change those rules? Uh, I, I would say that... Um 
Wait a minute. Just to clarify, what was the question again? You're asking me what I don't like about that? Yeah, tell me. Let's just stay with the condo analogy, uh, and then you can tell me what uh, what you feel is unjust what, or wrong. Uh, what well, you feel about having rules that you uh, mm-hmm. agree to live by if you're going to live in a community that you the community and well, you I, community I, I, I don't and have, have a say I don't have a problem with it at all. It's a choice you make, all right? I mean, mm-hmm. anywhere you want to live mm-hmm. is like, you know, any kind of clothes you want to buy or any kind of food you want to eat or whatever, um, there are conditions that are going to come along with that, right? Like, like um, you rent a car, like you, you rent- agree not to drive it off a cliff, right? Sure, sure. Those are and those are explicitly stipulated in the contract that you sign with the company renting you the car. And the same is true for a condo agreement, right? Everything is explicitly stipulated and. Uh, you can either agree to it or not to agree to it because that's part of the product that's being offered, right? The conditions are part of the product. Yes. yes. So and 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 there are um, just in a in a um, practical sense there are many 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 products out there to choose from. So uh, so in. Um, in practical terms, there's a real choice to be made there. You can live in this community, you can live in that community, you know, anywhere in the world, right? Sure. Um, and each sure. each choice is going to come with its own set of um, conditions, right? And benefits and pros and cons and all of that. So, um, so I don't really have a problem at all with. Um, condo agreements, uh, homeowners association agreements, anything like that, because you have a choice, right? Right, and in the same way, when you look at a country or a province or a state province. or a, a town or whatever, you have uh, you have choices. Uh, there are close to 300 countries, I think, around the world, uh, each of which is composed of dozens of states and counties and municipalities, so there are literally thousands of choices of uh, where to live of that best suits your particular uh, preferences for a social contract. So there is uh, a lot of choices uh, that you have, uh, and of course uh, you can choose to live completely outside of the social social contract, go live in the woods, or you can um, can, uh, choose um, to get involved and to take the social contract that is the closest to your preferred way of living and alter it uh, through uh, negotiation with the majority uh, or the people who vote in order to get it to be right along the lines of what uh, what you want. And that gives you an enormous amount of choice and possibility when it comes to living in the world. So are there any conditions at all uh, in in any of these sorts of agreements that um, you think would be um, uh, not allowable? Well, sure. I mentioned two of them at the beginning, right? The first is that you have to be allowed to leave, right? Otherwise, it's just enslavement, right? I mean, you, you do. I mean, that's why you slavery mean, is not a valid social contract. It's not allowed to leave. Right. And um, uh, you also have to have uh, the, the capacity or a possibility of having a voice in changing the social contract so that uh, it's not just imposed against you arbitrarily. I think the third one is it shouldn't be imposed by somebody completely outside the community. Um, so that probably would be, be less valid. But, yeah, th- those conditions, and there would be some others, I'm sure, but, but those conditions uh, um, should not be uh, – uh, not. I mean, I would say also in general, it should be as universal as possible. So you should not have, for instance, uh, rulers uh, or, or, or politicians who impose a law like taxation that they themselves would be immune to because it, then it's kind of like a top-down kind of thing. So, I mean, there are some general, you know, where modern 
democratic, um, roughly free market societies. Um, they, they fulfill all of those. You're free to leave. Uh, you can alter the uh, the conditions of the society that you're living in. It's not imposed from outside. No. And the laws the politicians the pass, they themselves are subject to. Uh, again, it's not perfect because nothing is perfect, but uh, it's a very close approximation of an ideal social contract. Well, what I'm trying to understand, though, is if it's my property, right? Like, say, I own the building, right? And, uh, uh, or a group of us own the building, and we're offering properties for sale in the building, um, why we couldn't uh, include as conditions uh, that once you sign this lease, you can never get out of it. I mean, if people can actually read that and, and consider that as, uh, you know, intelligent um, um, uh, people capable of reading and understanding text, why can't I have that in my contract? Well, uh, there's a generally accepted well, legal precedent that you can't, you can't sign away your own rights. Like you can't sign yourself as you can't sign, you can't sign away your own rights uh, in perpetuity. Uh, that's sort of not a valid uh, legal thing to take. Uh, so that would be generally the way. There would be very few courts that would ever uphold anything like that. Well, uh, I'm... Uh, I'm not really concerned what courts would or wouldn't uphold. What I'm dealing with here is the, the the concept or the question of the disposition of my own property, right? Well, so, sorry, just just to interrupt you though. Remember, it's only your property because the society as a whole protects your a right to it, right? It's only right. your property and gets to stay your property because there is a communal collective defense force called the police or or the court system or whatever the prisons, which will enforce in your retention of that property, right? So saying that you have property independent of a social contract is a misnomer, I think. The property only remains in your possession because there is a social contract that is enforced collectively. So what you're arguing then is that uh, property is an effect of force. Well, you're... The security of property requires a collective defense, which is part of the social contract. As I said at the beginning, we could live with no social contract whatsoever, but then there'd be no such thing as property, really. I mean, other than what you could defend with a club or something, because we have a social contract around the respect for property that's enforced through uh, the taxes paid uh, to, to enforce police and, and court decisions and, and prisons and so on. And that is what gives you the right to, to retain your property, right? So saying that you have property independent of the social contract, uh, I would say is, uh, is a non-starter uh, from a debating point. So... All right, so let me see if I understand this completely. Um, there really, <laughs> there really, that there really is no difference then between a, a social contract and an individual contract because they both require force in order to um, facilitate them. In your view. Well, I mean, but but it's a question of the proportionality of force, right? So. The question is, what is the minimum amount of force that we can live with in a society? And the best that's ever been come up with so far is, is sort of democratic, um, free market uh, uh, democracy. Yes, there is. I mean, yeah. obviously, there is force in a social contract in the people who disobey uh, the laws. 
Are progressed against. There's no question of that. But no, that. for the vast majority, for the vast majority, there is far less there is force in uh, a in democratic social contract than there would be in a state of nature, you know, where people just club each other to get what they want. So yeah, there's definitely there's force used in the social contracts, but it is far less far than uh, just about everybody would experience everybody. Uh, without the social contract, which is why the social contract is generally. Uh, um, uh, accepted by the majority of people, it's generally majority. considered valuable by the majority of people, and why it has developed to such a high degree uh, in the Western democracies, in particular. Particular. So, and this is just a little bit of a tangent, but let me let me see if I understand what you just said there. It's okay. It, it's it's not okay for people to club each other to get what they want, but it's okay to club each other to keep what you want. Is that well, right? sure. I mean, property rights, uh, if someone steals from you, I mean, you don't grab a club and go club them down, right? Most people will call the police where it is dealt with in a much more peaceful manner where people don't get clubbed, but rather get arrested and tried with evidence and uh, they have the right to confront their accusers. They have legal representation. It is a much more civilized way of dealing with the question of property than just whatever you then club people to defend. So, so then, the, the, in your view, the concept of property—I mean, it, I mean—it's really an—it's not a—it's not a concept at all. It's just an effect of the fact that I'm willing to punch you in the eye if you try to take my iPod. Sorry, I didn't quite understand. That. Sorry. Well. Well, I guess I guess where I'm getting confused is I don't understand how there can be a contract at all if there's no property. And what you're arguing is that property is no is nothing more than just a conceptual shorthand for I'll kick your ass if you take my iPod. No, no, no. See, but property. I mean, there's prop there's the state of nature where you club whoever you want to get whatever you want, right? That's not really property. That's, that's just rule of the strong, right? That's just uh, some Nietzschean, uh, right. some uh, a horrible, you know, uh, master-slave situation. So there's that. But when you actually have a concept of property, that relies upon a social contract where people agree to respect it and agree to submit their property disputes to the impartial arbitration of the state. Uh, and so really property comes into existence in the way that we understand it now when you have a social contract where people are willing to submit their disputes. They're not going to grab clubs and go pound each other, but they're going to submit their disputes to the uh, uh, impartial arbitration of the state. And that's why property is retained. And, of course, very of few course. people do have those disputes to the point where they go to court because the majority of people innately respect and, and uh, appreciate the social contract to begin with. I mean, very few people. Uh, I mean, very few uh, people end up being thieves, and very few people will. You know, you have people over to a dinner party. You don't have to count the chairs when they leave because they respect the social contract and its uh, right for property. That's how a non-violent society really comes into being: is that you have a centralized agency which people, uh, uh, which is supported by a social contract that people are willing to respect voluntarily, right? The government doesn't have to send people to pick up your taxes. Most people will pay it voluntarily because they respect and recognize the social contract. If it was just a complete rule of force, it would be sort of impossible, right? It's because people respect and appreciate the security and collective defense that the social contract uh, brings to them that they're happy to pay for those. Well, maybe not happy, but, but willing to, to pay uh, for the services provided. Well... <clears throat> 
Let's just take a break here while you mull that over, because uh, I don't think that we're actually getting to attack the social contractors yet. So are there other people who'd like to jump in who are chomping at the bit uh, with the criticisms of the social contract as it's portrayed? I got something, I think. Um, Yarman. Yar. Um, so this is coming straight from the crotch cam. Uh, first a question, <laughs> going back to the uh, going back to the condo association issue. Um, I think one thing that needs to be separated out. I mean, I understand that it's a metaphor for the social contract. Is the nature of the entitlement behind the condo association? So, if we hold that um, there is an owner to this condo association, then it's up to him at his own discretion, and you know he is and he will be susceptible to the consequences to set whatever voluntary conditions. Um, he desires for somebody to join the association. Would you say that characterization is correct, or, or would you say that the property just wouldn't exist at all? No, look, I mean, it's not it's not a volu- it's not voluntary desires, right? I mean, the social contract is not uh, you know kumbaya, let's dance around the campfire and. Have- Everybody gets together and agrees. There are clearly disagreements in the social contract. You look at things like capital punishment and abortion and uh, drug, uh, you know, drug use. Should it be criminalized? Should it be a misdemeanor? I mean, there's lots of disagreements about how uh, the social contract should be enacted. I mean, everyone's down with the basics. Don't kill, don't steal, don't rape, don't assault, and so on. That's totally fine. But there certainly are areas where there is a lot of controversy, and that's why you need the flexibility of a democratic system to allow people to get together and to work out these differences you know, through debate, through swaying uh, other people into a, a, a position that you prefer and that sort of thing. So, But it's certainly not voluntary. It's certainly not uh, – um, uh, if it was voluntary, then there would be no enforcement, right? And, and we all recognize that, that the police and the laws that are passed through the uh, just legislature are not voluntary but are, in fact, imposed upon people – um, or rather, they are aggressed against if they aggress against the social contract and break the rules. Um, well, you, you kind of made a claim right there that um, with, if it were voluntary, then there would be no enforcement. Um, would you agree that there, for the people who would be members of this social contract, right? They benefit from the social contract, right? That's the whole point. That's the whole argument that Rousseau made, that Hobbes made, that you know the presence of enforcement would you know enrich people's lives, even though it would come at an expense to their liberty. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but you not, ev- not everyone benefits from the social contract, so a, th- a guy who really wants to be a thief would probably benefit from the absence of a social contract to some degree, right? Somebody who just wanted to club people and get stuff, but the vast majority of people who want to live peaceful lives enormously benefit from the social contract. Okay, so, um, well, would you say that they also enormously benefit from the component of the social contract that entails enforcement? Yes, absolutely. They benefit... Again, it's it's not like maybe there's there's 20 percent uh, loss of liberty in the social contract, but there's a hundred percent loss of liberty in no social contract. So it's it's a net it's a net benefit. So I mean, it seems that it seems that there's kind of an implicit assumption being made that people, if it's in their interest to have some sort of enforcement, wouldn't choose some means beyond your restricted definition of a social contract in order to attain enforcement. So like you used earlier at the beginning of, of the broadcast, um, you mentioned a job, that getting a job um, can get you more liberty, even though you know you would imagine a homeless guy is maximally free because he has no obligations, yet you know, uh, sort of put, putting himself in a job eight hours a week actually attains him more liberty. That's kind of like a metaphor for the social contract. So in the same regard, I mean, it, it, to use that metaphor further, it would be like saying, um, you know, 
either be a street sweeper or be homeless, that your definition of the social contract is sort of precluding other ways of uh, voluntary association that could lead to enforcement? Well, no, see, but that's the beauty of a, of a democratic uh, uh, society is that you can voluntarily decide to completely bypass the law and you can try and work out through mediation, through other kinds of, of ways of interacting with people. Uh, the, the law is the port of last resort. Right? It's, it's where you go when everything else has failed and it is the final arbiter for these kinds of disagreements. But, I mean, when people get divorced, a lot of times they will hire mediators rather than go through the court system. So you have lots of options about how to resolve your disputes within a society. If your car gets stolen and you want it gone, then you don't have to press charges at all. There's lots of options about how to deal with these kinds of conflicts in a democratic society. Well, there's another assumption there that um, that your options, those types of options are never restricted, but they are, right? You don't have the choice of, let's su supposing that the institutions would fail to adequately protect your property, as we've seen in practice, right? That the police response time on a burglary is two to three hours, that, you know, they'd rather wait for the guys to leave than never recover your stolen property and so on. So there's an implicit assumption that the state would never have a means of interfering with those types of options of enforcement, right? And in that way, right, we can say that, you know, the state is, holds a monopoly or what would, what would be generated under the social contract, whether you call that a state or not, would have a monopoly over um, a certain kind of, you could say, um, enforcement or conflict resolution, namely the use of force. Well, I mean, I appreciate your point. And uh, you could be right, but the way that I, I'm just look, looking at my own life, the way that I deal with uh, uh, problems, you could say that there are problems within policing. And remember that policing simply results from the general social contract, which is that people have preferred as a whole uh, in a democracy to put fewer resources into policing than into other things, right? So, I mean, if everybody was really wanted a, a policeman on their front lawn, the social contract would provide it. It's just that your taxes would go up quite a lot or other services would suffer. So the response time of the police to a burglary is the result of prior decisions within the social contract. And what people have generally decided, as far as I understand it, what I've decided is I've said, look, I want to live in a safe neighborhood. I want to uh, not be ostentatious with the things that I own. I don't park a Rolls Royce. Even if I had one, I wouldn't park it in the front lawn. I have preferred to go with a security system that is hooked to a private alarm company. And uh, I would rather have... Um, lower taxes and face a, an increased chance of being stolen from rather than have higher taxes and a lower chance of being stolen from. So these are just, uh, you agree, and you may say, well, I prefer something else. You might want to hire a security guard. Lots of companies do that because they don't consider the response time of the police to be adequate. But this is all the complex sort of ecosystem of decisions that are made within a social contract about where people want to put resources in cure versus pre uh, prevention and so on. So do you think that your autonomy and your decisions are equally reflected in the social contract? I mean, yeah, I agree that there is sort of an ecosystem of decisions, but is it possible for one group, subgroup in the social contract to have more power than another group? Well, yeah, and that group is the majority, right? Right, and why, does, why should the majority have power? Or, I mean, do you think that the majority should have more power? Well, I mean, the social contract recognizes that uh, the group uh, as a whole is the one that is going to make the decisions 
uh, over um, the majority of, I mean, not the basics, we have a Bill of Rights, we have a Constitution, but over some of the more esoteric social policies, there is going to be a, um, you know, to reflect the changing nature of society, there is going to be a, a response and a debate within the uh, collective, within the majority, to figure out which direction uh, we go in certain esoteric areas. Well, I mean, I think that if you take the Bill of Rights or these core things as a given, right, and you say, okay, well, this is just the agreement that we're going to have this, you know, uh, this democratic vote, right? I mean, you can imagine a company's board of directors, right? It's it's a more of a voluntary thing that, you know, they have a, a majority vote. But I think that it, you, we sort of have to move the problem back to what makes the Bill of Rights or Constitution valid. I'm saying, ultimately, is the social contract at its root what determines the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, all that stuff, is that more majoritarianly determined? Or Well, in practical terms, there is... Um I mean, there's a there's culture, right? And we have a culture in the West that generally strives to respect individuals and provide flexibility in decision making and, and have a uh, uh, a responsive, uh, hopefully responsive political system where the politicians listen to the voters and provide some leadership and we sort of muddle through as best we can. And it's the best system, as Churchill said, democracy is the worst system in the world except for every other one that's ever been tried. So there is a... Um, uh, there is a general culture which we can accept. Nobody's going to sit there and successfully advocate the return of slavery because that's a cultural hurdle that fortunately we have uh, passed as, as a society. So there is some basic cultural realities that we have to deal with. But yes, I mean, the, the majority, uh, uh, you know, society is, is designed to serve the needs of the majority. Uh, the society is not designed to, to serve the needs of some random schizophrenic because then we'd all be jumping around like Mexican lima beans on a trampoline. But society is designed to, to serve the needs of the majority, and in fact, there's really no other way to do it. Because if the majority doesn't agree with something like taxation or for you know, collective defense, then they simply won't pay their taxes, and you could then lecture them all you want, but it simply wouldn't matter. So whether we like it or not, the majority is how society must work, because if the majority doesn't agree with it, it won't work no matter what you say. So would you say that consent is a necessary condition for a social contract to be valid? Would you rather universal consent? No, no, universal consent is not at all part of the social contract because if, you, if universal consent were possible, there would be no need for a social contract, right? Because the social contract is around us surrendering certain minimal liberties in order to gain many more liberties that we wouldn't have otherwise. And it's because we recognize that human beings in the absence of a social contract, in the absence of an enforcement mechanism called uh, the state or whatever, that human beings would simply live in a state of nature or anarchy or whatever, and that would be a negative state. So uh, without a doubt, universal consent is not only uh, uh, impossible, but would, would, would make the social contract invalid. I mean, you wouldn't so, need it. It would be pointless, right? So what are the necessary conditions for a social contract to make it valid? I mean, clearly, I think you would distinguish between an invalid social contract and a valid one. Like earlier, you said North Korea wasn't a valid social contract, right? Well, I've, I've now said it twice. Perhaps you could repeat them back to me just to see if you're listening, because if you're not, I won't say them a third time. Well, that you'd be able to leave mm -hmm. and that um, you have the ability to change it. Mm -hmm. Right. So... Um, then and it should not be imposed questions. from outside. Uh, there was the last one, but sorry, go on. Right, right. Okay, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of even. But um, right. So I think then the question shifts to why these conditions uh, are are valid. So I mean, the ability to change. Um, I mean, ultimately, right. You can 
reject, you could say, well, this is a perfectly acceptable iteration of the social contract, but I think that even in North Korea, there's the ability to change certain, at least certain elements of, of the government, right? It's not impossible for people to demand, you know, more butter this week as opposed to an egg uh, another week. What, how, what would, how would they do that, that? From falling into the category? I mean, as far as I understand um, it, they get shot or sent to slave camps if they even question anything about the government. They can't protest. They can't get together. They can't agitate. There's no uh, uh, free assembly, free speech. Uh, they can't influence their politicians there. I mean, they have about as much influence over their politicians as your average herd of cattle does over the farmer. But I think ultimately it's a, dis a difference in, in degree and not kind. So maybe you could say North Korea is in total lockdown. But, I mean, would you say that the United States would be a more free country than um, some, other, what's, uh, some other Western nation in terms of, uh, in terms of freedoms? Or would you well, say that I all think, the Western no, nations I mean, are on I, par? Look, there are, um, there are certain things which would be different about the United States than in other countries, for sure. But all that does is reflect the will of the majority. So, for instance, in the United States, the role of religion in politics is much greater than it would be in, say, Scandinavia or Sweden. However, that simply reflects the social contract as a whole, which is that people as a whole are much more religious in the United States. So there would be certain things where an atheist, say, would feel more uncomfortable in the United States than in Sweden. But that is simply a result of the existing social contract, which accurately reflects the fact that a lot of Americans are very religious. But that doesn't address the issue as to how change comes about in these countries, right? I mean, you can't. It's, it, you start getting into non-falsifiable territory when you start saying, "Well, there are cultural reasons why the social contract prohibits changes in the social contract," right? So I, I don't think that answers the issue as to. How, I'm sorry, sorry. Um, how did we get to prohibiting changes in the social contract? If if changes are prohibited in the social contract, it's no longer a social contract. Right, right. So what I was pointing out with the whole the difference between Western Europe and America is that in some countries in Western Europe it's harder to achieve change right there's maybe or rather maybe in America as opposed to Western Europe right you have to grease more palms of the politicians and so on right I mean I'm saying uh, sorry uh, I'm, I'm just trying to understand what you mean are you saying that it's harder to achieve democratic change in the US than in say some other country right because the, the, the institutions are certainly different so the amount of mobilization needed to get a change, even if it's the majority or whatever is considered legitimate under your social contract, is certainly different. And can you tell me how? I'm just not sure I follow that. How is, how is it that it's harder to have change in the United States as opposed to, say, France? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm not sure wh whether it's France is easier than the United States or the United States is easier than France, but there is certainly a difference in the ability to change in either, and it would come about based on, let's say, the structure of the electoral system, um, the p power of any special interests that have been able to capture regulatory agencies or uh, yes, sorry, uh, sorry, to interrupt you. sorry to interrupt you, but, but l let's say that all of this is true, and I'm sure that, that, it, that it is, but all of that is just the result of prior agreements in the social contract. So if America has lots of farmers, which it does relative to, say, Iceland, then those farmers are going to have more special interest sort of uh, uh, effects uh, or, or influence over legislation, but uh, that's just because uh, people like to eat and there's lots of farmers in America, so it's not um, I mean, whatever alterations there are uh, in, or whatever differences there are between these societies actually speaks to support the social contract rather than to nullify it because it means that the social contract is changing to reflect local preferences and conditions. 
Well, I, I, I mean, I think in a way that argument can be leveled for anything, and again, it sort of turns into the non-falsifiable type of argument, right? I mean, you can always say, well, it's the result of prior decisions, and in a way, organically, that's the case. But did those prior decisions conform to at least the explicit goals of the social contract or some of the conditions of the social contract, right? So is farmers being able to, uh, for example, take subsidies from other taxpayers? Is that valid under the social contract? Well, sure. Because the well, uh, legislation also, to provide those farm subsidies was voted upon and is, uh, is accepted uh, by the majority of the population who pays taxes without a revolution, without a tax revolt, without anything like that. And uh, since, of course, my, uh, the farming community represents one or two percent of the American population, if the rest of the population no longer wanted these farm subsidies, they would simply tell their politicians through their votes they no longer wanted them, and there's no way that 2% of the population can hold the rest of 98% of the population, uh, voting population hostage, and therefore it would change uh, in a heartbeat. So could we level this argument? So, so pretty much the, the voting and uh, the legislation, that is legislative process and so on are what made this chain of decisions valid. Could we say that Iran's parliament Right when it passes a law to subsidize, let's say, farmers in the north at the expense of farmers in the south, um, that that is a valid choice of the social contract or a valid decision in the, in the pre, under the pretext of the social contract. Well, I mean, the question is, of course, does um, uh, does Iran allow its citizens to leave, and do they have an active and possible participation in the political process? Well, what constitutes an active participation in the political process? Well, the right of free assembly, the right to, to start political parties, the right to free speech, uh, and all these kinds of things, and the right to uh, to appeal to and influence uh, the decision makers in the political process and so on. Uh, all of those would be valid ways of being allowed to openly influence. Uh, I don't even know if women can vote over I mean, I don't know, right? So I, I don't know the degree to which they have the kind of democratic freedoms that we have here or we enjoy here. But the degree to which they don't, then it would not be a valid social contract. So pulling away from Iran for a moment, you've introduced freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and so on. So you would say those are necessary under the social contract. Those fall under the concept of, of the ability to change that you put forward as a condition. Yes. Yes. If you don't okay, have so the ability to influence a social contract, then it can't be considered uh, binding. Okay, so do you believe that there can be differences in degree in the, in the abilities and manifestations of these? Or furthermore, would you say that a restriction on any of these would make a social contract comparatively worse than another? Sure. Right. So tying it back to the France and the U.S. issue, there are certainly gulfs in terms of those rights of freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, uh, among other things, right? Look at how campaign contributions are structured in the United States as opposed to France. Um, look at how the media is controlled, right? I mean, all of these, uh, there are a number of factors that uh, constitute a complex ecosystem of, uh, of, I guess, factors that would affect the eff effectuality of one's ability to change a social contract. Sorry, and did that you say how the media like is controlled? I just, you, you put a lot of stuff in there. I just want to pause on that one. You said how the media is controlled. Is that right? Yes. But I would argue that the media is a perfect representation of the social contract because the media is certainly not enforced upon the general population, right? Nobody is forced to watch any particular TV show. And the media is simply... Uh, interested in grabbing eyeballs. Right? The, the job of the media is to serve up eyeballs to advertisers or ears to advertisers, so to speak. 
So I would say that the the media is a perfect representation of the social contract. It simply reflects the preferences of the voluntary uh, viewer or listener to to the media. So I'm not sure what you mean when you say the media is controlled. Well, um, I think I think uh, controlled may be a too too strong of a term, but, but you can definitely say that there are uh, things that limit the competitiveness of the media. And when there's a limitation on com competition in any market, you cannot say that the outcome of the market necessarily represents the preferences of, of consumers. Well, sure, but uh, the, uh, the, uh, let's say that there are limitations. Obviously, there are licensing issues and FCC regulations on the media. But if the, uh, if the majority did not want that to be the case, it would change, right? So it simply is reflecting the valid will of the majority that these things are in place. And again, we can say, well, uh, that should be different, but um, then we have the job you, uh, of, of convincing the majority to change its mind. Do you think that the majority's mind is not endogenous to the social contracts? Do you think that perhaps, um, would you rule out the possibility that the presence of force, for presence of the force is nice, um, <laughs> that... <laughs> um, the force is strong in the being a crotchy one. <laughs> um, would you say that, that people's preferences are not affected? by the ability of the government to use violence? I mean, in a way, you're sort of suggesting that people's preferences are this exogenous whole that's unchanging and that their decisions always reflect a genuine or, or straightforward uh, representation of their preferences? Uh, there is no doubt that human beings' uh, decision-making capacities are limited by the application of force. That is the entire point of the social contract, is to say that we give up certain freedoms in order to gain more freedoms through a general enforcement of the social contract. So there's no question. And there's no question that there is a, a, a non-universal... Again, I, I don't want to keep going over these points, right? But there's no question that there is a non-universality of belief, because if there was a universality of belief, we wouldn't need a social contract. Well, of course, of course, but but I I, don't, I think that that still dodges the issue as to as to whether I mean so basically let's let's walk back to the media argument. I put forward that um, because of a number of regulatory considerations and so on that it doesn't uh, that the media doesn't reflect a competitive market, and I, I use that to advance the claim that it doesn't reflect the preferences of viewers. And you responded by saying that well the setup of the regulatory agencies. Uh, is a reflection of people's preferences. Mm -hmm. But um, to which I put forward the question, does the pre presence of, of force in the government affect what those people's preferences are? Well, no, in a no, way no, that does the, not the do them justice. Is, the force is only deployed. Let's say that the force is used uh, in the media uh, to, to limit competition or whatever, but that force is only there because of the prior preferences of the majority of voters. Or at least their right. acceptance of, of the situation. Right. So, so you, yes, the force is definitely there, but uh, only as a result of the preferences of the voters. So to back, to back up historically into the genesis of the social contract, um, could the social contract be an ex post facto description of something that came about via the imposition of one group, via, via the imposition via force of one group, over another group, because it seems that that explanation again falls into non-falsifiable territory. Right? We, there are no possible tangible evidence I could ever give to refute that. And that's I, not I absolutely a good agree with you that have. there is a certain, I mean, it's not like, it's not like a bunch of warring tribes or, or uh, you know, uh, noble savages all sat down in a plenary council and decided to go forward with a social contract that they all 
signed with the blood of their pet rabbits or something. I fully agree with you that it is an ex post facto metaphor or way of understanding the genesis or the creation of a, a civil society. That having been said, we can, I think, reasonably understand that it was preferential to what came before, because otherwise it would not have continued and evolved to such a high degree as it has in Western democracies. It was preferable to what came before, which is why we say you give up some rights in order to maintain a far greater set of rights. Um, And in the same way, we don't say that a social contract is simply the imposition of force. Uh, as I've said before, and I may have to say again, uh, a, uh, the imposition of force does not justify the social contract because you do have to have the right to participate in it, to, to state your case, to alter the views of the majority, to participate in shaping it, uh, and uh, you have to have the ability to, uh, to not, uh, be forced to stay within it. So it's not simply the imposition of force that justifies or creates a social contract. The social contract is an evolution where well, uh, everybody gets to participate in creating what it is considered justifiably enforceable within society. But it is force. It is the use of force. We can keep talking about it and saying that it's not the use of force, but it is force. It's the same thing as a rude third guy coming in on a microphone. It's force. Um, good illustration. Good illustration. I've not. Uh, I don't think. I. I mean, if you if you watch this again, I don't think that you'll ever I find don't. a time where I have said that it's not force. It is force. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's and less it's force. Than, but it's less force without than, a social contract, where it would just be a war. Uh, it would I, I, I don't know that we've seen the evidence of that. It's not only it's not only force, but it's also the denying of my ability to have self-defense. I'm I'm disarmed by this. You are disarmed by the social contract. That's very true because the social contract has to be enforced through overwhelming force. But you're subject to much less violence than you would be if there were no social contract and it was a war of all against all. And you're saying that, but where's the proof of that? And you've listed several guys who supposedly have various levels of social contracts, some of which are pleasant, some of which are not, but we haven't talked about anybody who doesn't have a social contract yet. Okay, I'm happy to talk about uh, who are the people who don't have a social contract. Nobody. There's force on everybody. Right, and and again, right. and, and it would be great if we could snap our fingers and make everyone peaceful and no longer need a social contract. But the fact that every human being in the world being in is the subject world to a social contract, I think, is an indication that it is beneficial to society as a whole. It's an indication. Um, those are just words, but I'm a pacifist, and the system that you're describing removes the possibility of somebody being a pacifist and being able to defend himself against people who are not pacifists. Well, I think that's an excellent point. I certainly do applaud your pacifism, and what I would say, I and what is that, is that, is that uh, no, I would, I would absolutely uh, no. applaud your pacifism. But what I would say is that the best way for you to overcome the social contract is to talk to people about pacifism, get the majority of people to be interested in and practicing pacifism, and that way the social contract will inevitably alter to give you the kind of liberty that you want. We'd all love to have the the eloquence and and, uh, uh, rhetorical power to convince people that force was never a good solution, nobody should steal, nobody should kill, nobody should uh, rape, nobody should assault, in which case we would no longer need uh, a government or a social contract or anything like that. So I would absolutely applaud your pacifism and say that once the world, or at least the majority of people accept 
your approach to life, then the social contract will change. But if the majority of people reject pacifism, people will then will turn out to be rather bad apples indeed. Oh, bad apples talk, indeed. You're still talking. I'm such a pacifist, I'm even reluctant to interrupt you. That's how much of a passive time. I had to be rude to interrupt you. The system that you're describing completely obliterates the possibility of a pacifist. Unless, unless I can use force to convince my friends to not use force. I'm, I don't believe in force. How could I possibly use your system? As a, a, a pacifist could not possibly use the system that you're describing to affect change because that would be using force. I would have to wrestle the force away from you to convince my friends to not use force. And that's a contradiction. Well, except that in a democracy, you don't wrestle power away from other people. All you would do is you would create the pacifist party and you would go and uh, convince people to be pacifists. And then you would become a political leader and you would use your uh, your authority uh, to strike down down laws and uh, aspects of the social contract that you found objectionable, which you could get the majority to agree with you about. So I don't think that would would be eliminating. Eliminating. How are we going to convince other people to be pacifists? How are we going to enforce the pacifism? I don't know. Convincing and enforcing are not the same thing. If you can convince the majority of people that the laws that are passed in a a democratic society are bad and we should eliminate most, if not all of them, then you can absolutely get that done within the social contract. And as to how, I don't know the magic wand, but you would end your effort. Does the guy who's in charge, and it's a guy or two guys or three guys, whoever's in charge of the social contract, um, how do I convince my pacifist friends that it's okay that we choose these guys who are using force to enforce the social agreement? Um, to, to, how, do we, uh, how do we convince them to accept force? How do you convince you them to accept force? force? No, how do... Um, Boy, you guys can help me if you got suggestions. You know what I'm trying to say. Um, the social contract uses force to enforce the social contract. I'm a pacifist. I don't believe in using force, except for in self-defense. Right. Right. So how could I enforce a pacifist contract? Well, you don't. But what you well, do, you sorry to interrupt, but what you do, if you know, if I can humbly suggest this, what you do is you put together you, the pacifist party and you go and talk to people or record people. podcasts or videos from your home, and you say to people, you say to we, need people to look, look, we need to, to stop using force to enforce the social contract. The social contract, if you can convince enough people, will inevitably shift that way, and you will end up, in a sense, with a voluntary social contract if the majority of people wish to, to go in, in that direction. And it will be um, enforced through force. No, no, no. It will. If you can convince everyone to stop using force, there'll be no need for a social there'll contract, no. so to speak. And we will have angel wings and pixie dust. Am I going to keep be able to keep the cop from using force against me while I'm doing this? Well, sure, because you would use the democratic political system to uh, to convince people that we don't need police, uh, to convince everyone uh, to, to be virtuous, everyone to be virtuous uh, from dawn till uh, dusk and every hour in between. And then uh, you would eliminate the police through the political process. There would be no more enforcement, and uh, we would all eat honey and uh, and bees. What is a political party? Oh well, a political party oh, well, is uh, a mechanism, of course, by which you will attempt to convince people to give you their trust in order to alter the social contract to your preference, which would be to eliminate most, if not all, of it, if I understand it correctly. 
And earlier you were talking about the um, 98% of the majority um, exerting control over the 2%. Why, as the 2%, am I supposed to yield to your force against me? Well, because well, the yielding to the social contract is the war of all against all, right? At least that's the theory. Again, I, I don't have any empirical proof because we don't had we didn't have video cameras back in the Paleolithic age. But um, the theory is that the theory when is there that was no social contract, no people didn't voluntarily people. subjugate themselves to generally accepted social rules and enforce and against those who didn't voluntarily subject themselves to it and force against those who stole and robbed and killed and so on, that one. society was much worse, much more violent, much more dangerous, uh, particularly for uh, vulnerable in society, the old, the pregnant, the children, and so on. So when we began to have more universal rules around what is acceptable within society and we began to impose those rules on the outliers or the outlaws, society became less violent. So the reason I would suggest that you should submit yourself to the social contract is because... Um, it's like submitting yourself to the dentist. It's like, yeah, it sucks for a little while, but you're much better off in the long term. So I'm going to um, abdicate my will so that we don't have all against all, but now we have majority against minority. And it could be a majority of 51% against 49%. If I'm in the minority, it, I, just, I would be better to be all in all if I'm a minority. You would be better to be three? I would be better to be involved in aggression all against all if I'm the minority, because at this point, I definitely have 51% against me. All in all, all I've got is my immediate neighbors and that kind of, uh, th th those situations. Right. And I mean, that's an excellent point for sure. Um, let me give you two responses to that. Just to that. When he says that. The first is the that first um, is, if it's 49 it, to 51 49. and you're on the 49 side, surely that should cause you to spend some energy convincing the 1%, the 1.01% to alter their position, right? So, right when, so when things are that close in society, there tends to be a lot of involvement with people who are attempting to sway the social contract one way or another. So. It's not like uh, if it's 99 to 1, then no, but the 1% is not going to spend a huge amount of effort because it's like, okay, uncle, I give, right? But if it's you know, 49 to 50.1, then for sure you should put lots of effort into getting your point of view across. And, of course, let's say it doesn't happen this time. There's time. In, an, in another couple of years, there's another election, and you can you make your case. You can you build your case through that time to get those a few percentage of points of, of people over. So that, that's the first thing that I would say. The second thing that I would say is that uh, clearly, you you don't do what you say, right? So as a pacifist, you say, well, I'm in the minority and I don't want to support the social contracts, and therefore it would be better for me just to have a war of all against all, but you don't do that, right? You, practically, you do obey the social contract, the social contract. Uh, even the parts that you disagree with. Because, of course, there are other of parts of the social contract that other people disagree with that you approve of, and they obey it as well, right? So that's um, – uh, it, it's um, not that you are, you it's not going, that you out are going, going out to blaze the, the social contract, right? The social contract, right? I mean, you are respecting it the I mean, way you that other people respect it, and so we have to sort of look at how we actually but live but rather than the sort of theoretical Mad Max and the Thunderdome situation. Can I just ask a question? But yes. But let's go with the non-bearded one. Okay. Um, well, I'm just curious because because you've I'm not going to blink until you finish your question, so don't take too long. Okay. Um, okay, I will. You've said a lot about the origins of this social contract being this war of all against all, and to me that seems to be some sort of uh, implicit description of human nature. Would that would you say that's correct? 
Uh, I, I myself believe that human nature is much more affected by culture than genetics, and we can see that looking at different cultures around the world and how different people are. I don't think it's a description of human nature, but I think it was a description of society before we began to subject our sort of angry, greedy wills, such as we had, to a, a more general, uh, generally accepted set of rules. Okay, because I'm just, I'm kind of confused about when you say we had these angry, greedy wills, um, how that suddenly changed for the people who were in the government, who created the government. Like, when did that whole transition take place? Well, I think that what happened was people who, I mean, again, there's no proof. This is just a way of looking at it. Um, but I think the way that it happened was people got sick and tired of fighting all the time, and they just decided to appoint an arbiter and to submit their wills to that person. And they say, okay, well, sometimes it'll go against me, sometimes it'll go for me, but on balance, it's a hell of a lot better than hitting people with clubs, right? So people just basically said, let's just appoint someone who's, you know, the wisest and the smartest guy in the village or the, the, the huts or the caves or whatever. And that person is going to be the person that we're going to submit our will to. And um, they gave you know, a tenth of their crops to this guy who then could hire a couple of policemen to keep the peace. And people just said, oh, my God, this is so much better than us running around in the woods clubbing each other whenever we get upset. So it's not that, I mean, ideally, the social contract, and this is more true in modern democracies than it would have been in, in the past, the social contract is not imposed upon a population, but is generated from the preferences of the population. And, and that's why it is maintained, for the, for the most part, without force at all. And, uh, and why most people will pay their taxes and submit to laws against drunk driving voluntarily, rather than go out in a blaze of glory, gun down cops, and ship all their money off seas in gold bars, hidden in the belly of dolphins or something. So uh, this, um, uh, this idea, the social contract, is, is, is gener generates a government through the practical preferences for a less violent society. It's just okay. to interject real quick. It sounds like you've made a historical claim right there, right? That this is the genesis of the social contract or this is the genesis of the state, right? I mean, you're saying that this claim could no, be backed I'm, no, by sorry. history. No, I'm not saying, I'm saying it can't be proved. But what I am saying is it's a useful metaphor. Obviously, we don't really care about the social contracts of Paleolithic tribes. We don't care what, uh, what uh, contracts written on bison hides were made between Cro-Magnons and Neanderthals. What we care about is the current social contract and the social contract of the future. And that has to be based upon the voluntary participation and inclusion of citizens. So I'm not making factual claims because there's no evidence that I know of, because this almost all occurred in free language situations language with simply situation. no records of it. But of we it. can assume that we people can. did find it preferable to have an arbiter that was a wise guy uh, so to speak, rather than uh, a club. Well, uh, well in order for that uh, metaphor... Sorry, uh, somebody was going to go? No, let's let probably okay. go on, if that's all right. Unless you had a point you wanted to add. I just wanted to get back to her question. Because she's had time yeah, to brew some really to evil questions. And so I don't want to deny her the opportunity. Otherwise, she'll end up, you know, vomiting black blood uh, on, the, uh, on the webcam or something. And that's usually... Ugh. Anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> Okay, so um, I'm just because what I think of within a democracy, people who who are attracted to power um, or people with sort of not so good natures, would they go for a a system wherein they're less accountable for their actions or for where they're more accountable for their actions? 
Well, I mean, again, we're talking an ideal situation, but in a democracy, they're accountable. They have to appeal to the people. They would be accountable to the people. Um, whether they would prefer a more or less accountable system, I don't know. Maybe every politician wants to be a dictator, which is why the social contract and democratic voting is so important. Well, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just kind of uh, this or that question. I mean, would they, would an evil person be more attracted to a situation of less accountability or more accountability? Well, I think an evil person would probably be attracted to a situation of less accountability, which is why the social contract is sort of an evolution from the, the clubbing scenario. And not the fun clubbing, you know, with the cocaine and the hookers, but the other kind. Well, um... The reason, I mean, the reason I ask that is because I don't really hear any any stories about cops going to jail. I don't hear any stories, you know, when politicians get caught, you know, they hardly, they, I mean, you know, everybody knows they pretty much get away with everything. So I would say there's less accountability in that situation than there would be in, say, an, an everyday job. I mean, would you not agree with that? Well, um, I guess three very brief points. The first is that there's no question that the social contract is not perfect. There, there is no human institution that is perfect, which is why we need the constant feedback of, the, of the democratic process. So I agree with you. There are certain things that I would prefer in terms of more accountability. And so I, as a concerned voter, it would be up to me to, uh, to pursue those. So that was my, my first point. The second point, though, is that you could very easily look at, and I think reasonably so, um, you could look at something like lack of accountability for cops and you could say, look, the social contract has come down on the side of giving cops leniency because if the cops feel that they can't act, then society ends up being not protected because cops are sitting there thumbing through a 1,200-page rule book when they're in the midst of a pursuit of someone. So as a, as a society as a whole, we've decided to give the cops more latitude uh, because it makes them a more effective police force. And if people wanted to tie the hands of cops and, you know, force them to go to jail every time they arrested the wrong jaywalker, then we would end up with a different kind of society where cops would feel pretty paralyzed and people would not prefer that. So that's sort of another uh, that's another uh, approach for sure. So th those would be my responses to that. Um, uh, you know, if you feel that okay. cops and politicians should be more accountable, then uh, I would put that into the uh, public debate uh, and and make that part of the agenda for the next election. Okay. Um, one one thing I keep noticing you're saying is that society prefers this, or you know, the, obviously the majority has decided this. And if we're accepting democracy as a system wherein the majority gets its way. Why do we need to enforce it? Oh, well, um, because there is the minority who who doesn't want to do it, right? Obviously, right? I mean, if, if you pass a law that says uh, you have to stop on red uh, when there's a traffic light, then there will be a bunch of people who don't want to stop on red, who just want to, you know, take their chances with the uh, T-boning. So... Right. You know, you, you have to enforce it because there's a majority of people who don't want to agree. Again, if you could get homogenous agreement, you wouldn't need a social contract at all. I mean, there would be no need for, I mean, there'd be no crime, there'd be, I mean, we'd live in paradise and, and some other planet, right? Okay, I can see that. I mean, I can I can see your point on, on the on the traffic light thing. But, I mean, for the, for the vast for the majority of government... Um, institutions where you're trying to finance something like self or like a national defense or you're trying to finance welfare if the majority of people are already willing to pay for it then then why exactly do you need to enforce it 
Well, um, I would say it's because of this. It's because the majority have, has looked at the risks of noncompliance and found them to be too high. So even if I say, look, all, I guess, seven of us would, would pay for welfare, um, the risks of noncompliance, given that, you know, poor children uh, are dependent upon welfare checks and, and uh, you know, people have made decisions on that. And, and if those welfare checks don't go out, then uh, children starve in the streets and so on. What we've done is we've looked as a collective, we've looked at the risks that people won't agree uh, to do it voluntarily. And we say, look, those risks are too high given the, the dangers to the vulnerable that would be engendered by a lack of donations to the welfare state. And so we've said, look, the overhead of, of charging people for it gives us certainty. And yes, it's a little more expensive because we need a bureaucracy and we need the tax processing stuff. But given that the costs of noncompliance to uh, charity in this form would be so high, we've looked at it as a society and said, we're going to make it compulsory. I mean, maybe we all believe that everyone would do it voluntarily, but the cost of having it compulsory is so little, uh, and uh, the uh, the disaster of it not being enough would be so great that we've just decided to take out that extra bit of insurance uh, and make it uh, a law rather than a preference. It sounds. I mean, it sounds like we're getting into stuff that's like largely really theoretical. I mean, you're kind of assuming a lot. So, I mean, I just I have one one final question, one final argument. I mean, um, and the question I have is this: Would you say that a social institution should accept its own justification as you know as a valid you know its own should it, should it um, if someone were to come with a similar problem to it and should it accept its own justification for existence and its application to that problem? I think I mean I think I understand it. I mean I saw some freaked out five minute thing on the internet that uh, I didn't follow at all. Just some babbling Brit head. Um, well. I mean, you could say, I mean, that, that to me seems much more theoretical than whether we should enforce a welfare state. The The question is, does it matter? And I'm sorry to, to put it in those kinds of pragmatic terms. It's just that if the majority of people have decided to submit to a social contract, and and it's not like, on the important stuff, it's, it's not like 51% of people don't want people to murder and 49% of them do want to murder, right? I mean, it's like 999 to 0.01%, and I particularly don't have any problem uh, uh, enforcing don't murder on the 1 in 100 people or 1 in 1,000 people who would consider it otherwise. So given that, that let's say, our cultural prejudices or our, our generalized ethics are against things like murder, rape, and, and, and theft and assault and so on, you know, does the social system justify itself? Well, it doesn't matter. Those things are bad. The vast majority of people accept that. They want to prevent the n nasty minority of people from doing it. Whether it theoretically justifies itself or there's some external god or theory that could or couldn't do it, doesn't really matter. You're still not going to change people's minds about whether murder is bad. So um, the majority of people don't want a society where you can have rape and murder and theft and, and, and assault. And... Um, how they justify it doesn't really matter because it's the majority. And if you want to change that and say to people, well, you should allow these things, then I guess you could try and, and change the social contract to, or eliminate it to reflect that. But that's sort of where society is at the moment. It's justified through our cultural traditions, through the beauties and glories of the Judeo-Christian ethic. Uh, and so it's a little hard to change that kind of weight of history, I would say, without, um, uh, without trying to overturn a whole lot of stuff. Man, I'm going to have to take a long shower, I'm telling you. 
<laughs> they feel so dirty. And not in the way that I like. <laughs> I was amazing. The bullshit I was amazing. Come up with it. Anyway, sorry. Go on. Christina, is your head about what? to explode? Christina, is this? <laughs> Did you want to put in a, re- a rebut? But you, do you want to come and sit here and do it? No. Okay, you'll ha- let me turn the mic. Christina's going to give us a rebut, and I'm going to pretend that it's my belly talking. No, I'm not. I'm just kidding. Uh, can you? I have a hard time formulating thoughts when there's debate going on. So can you hear a little bit? Oh, sorry. Can, can everybody hear me? Okay. Can you guys hear? Yes, hear. Sounds good. All right. Good. Okay, I have a hard time formulating my thoughts when there is a debate going on and a discussion, but the, certain, the one thing that kept going through my mind throughout all of this is the issue of the majority rules. And I'm not sure if I'm going to pose this as a question. Like I said, formulating my thoughts is really difficult, but I have this suspicion that nobody tells me what to do in other areas of my life. Nobody tells me who to marry. No, it's <laughs> No, really, you don't. <laughs> okay. Social contract is matriarchal in our household. But go uh, nobody tells me who to marry. Nobody tells me what school to attend. Nobody tells me what car to buy. Nobody tells me what house to buy, what furniture to buy, what time to get up in the morning, uh, or anything like that. And so the idea that somebody else, that, that a group of people can tell me or can, can impose their preferences upon me is something that I find fundamentally flawed um, with, with the social contract. Again, I think that's where we need to go in this discussion. I haven't had a real chance to sort of formulate my thoughts more deeply to argue that point uh, to its conclusion, but I think that's where this debate needs to go. Right. Uh, there's freedom in every aspect of my life so to speak, in my day-to-day stuff, except I don't have the freedom to choose whether or not I want to pay the taxes for, um, for instance, uh, up until, well, even now, I don't have a child. Hopefully, the baby will be born healthy and we'll be able to, 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 uh, to raise our child. What if I don't want to send my child to school? What if I want to homeschool my child? Why should I be forced to pay for education taxes and for the public school system? I don't have a right to choose that. I know that you would say, well, then I should go somewhere else or I should go out and live into the woods. Or try and change the social contract. Or try and change the social contract. (laughs) Uh, The question I have also is, um, how informed is the majority? How can we ensure that the majority, that each and every person who is uh, voting, uh, can make these decisions? Has a clue. Has a clue. Right. Right. About uh, whether I want defense, whether I want. um, What what if I don't have elderly parents, or I don't care whether or not they are. But you should care about other people's elderly parents. But the point is, I would be able to make that decision myself and donate money, donate my resources, mm-hmm. my time, my effort, if I cared about the issues that are important to me. And I don't like the idea that other people can impose their preferences upon me. This is about universally preferable behavior. Um, and people are not, people don't have the right or should not have the right to impose their preferences. Right. Right. No, I, so, I mean, I think that there's some more you wanted to. I don't know. I mean, that's that's sort of where I want to go with no, it, and I'm sure you have. Yeah. And I think you, I think you'll probably be able to debate every single point I make. But, no, but, that's great. Yeah. No, that's great for a woman who's getting kicked in the kidneys. You are doing a fantastic job 
uh, by bringing up points. Okay. So how does how would you argue that, or would you? Well, let me just go back to uh, go back uh, to, uh, to uh, our uh, bottom left uh, Jimbo category. Uh, James, uh, uh, how do you feel that the debate has been going, pro and uh, con the um, social contract? Now, I'm not going to turn it. We'll have to do this next week. I'm not going to turn because it's a long conversation. I don't want to turn it around, but we can try turning it around next week. Uh, but uh, how do you feel that it's gone in terms of the criticisms and uh, the, the, the pro and the con for the social contract? Hmm. Oh, I've startled Well, there is definitely some... No, no. Were you in your happy place, uh, Heidi Klum? Is she there? And that sardine oil that you like? Anyway, sorry, go on. No, um... What the, I, hmm. Now, I, 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 I had thoughts now. I can't think. I can't remember. Um, to, uh, well, we can just uh, we can throw this out to a general. I mean, we, we, I want to wind up in a minute or two just so we don't bring down YouTube. But um, uh, how do people feel when sort of watching or listening to this, um, uh, uh, this uh, you know, me taking the sort of evil side of the social contract? Uh, how, how do people feel that it sort of went in terms of uh, the pros and cons? Yes, Wavy. I've got yes, a question. Yes, Wavy. Um, the question is, how does the social con – we were talking about how the social contract started earlier, like how they begin, like the, what, what the genesis of the social contract is like. And so if I, if I understand it right, you described a scenario where the majority decide to change something and that decision slowly shifts the social contract so that they're now – they can enforce that on other people, right, on the minority? Yeah, okay. on the minority. So, yeah, um, on the minority bet. Right. So, so um, if if I'm right, is the social contract limited to, to predefined geographical areas, or can um, arbitrarily defined geographical areas um, have their own social contract? So, like, like the state of North Carolina could have its own social contract versus like the United States had its social contract. Yes, uh, and in fact, yeah. I would say again, going back to uh, going back to uh, Apple, Steph, uh, the um, the uh, the social contract uh, can absolutely be uh, set around arbitrary uh, uh, lines of political uh, uh, districts or whatever, but only if those arbitrary uh, lines are themselves arrived at through the process of a social contract and a voluntary uh, kind okay. of democracy. I have, uh, kind I have of a democracy. social contract that I want to propose real quick. Huh? I propose. Huh? I propose a social contract that says that we are right, that the social contract is invalid, and you are wrong. And as long as we vote on it, then you're right. And, like, we're right. Yes, but of course it would only be valid if the social contract is valid. So it would be invalid, and it would be a contradiction at this point that you're going to use the social contract to invalidate the social contracts. There's this book called UPD. Sorry, go can I make another point? Can Christina, another would you like, Christina, would you, Christina, would you? The government doesn't the government exist in reality. Exist. And so, the and fact so, that we are giving a group of people the authority to make decisions for us, again, that strikes me as wrong, <laughs> for lack of a more stronger well, it's not word. UPB compliant, for it's sure. not yeah. UPB compliant, and I think that, again, I, I, my head is just swimming. Uh, at it's a really point. tough, uh, it's a tough debate. Look, I mean, it's been going on for 
right. 2,000 years or more than, right. right? So it's a tough So debate. what gives, I mean, if, if you, I mean, if these people are just, the government doesn't exist. It's composed of people. Those people are no different than I am. They go, they just support, just because they walk into a particular building in the morning doesn't, shouldn't give them any more, they don't change chemically, biologically, physiologically in any way. Um, so that their ideas and their opinions have more validity or credibility than my ideas and my opinions. And so the ability, the, their own, their capacity to enforce a law or a preference is immoral. I mean, you stated it more than argued it, but I, I completely agree with the conclusion, for sure. Okay, so I got my thoughts are kind of all over the place. Well, I, I and think, Steph, yeah. take it from there. No, I mean, I, I think, again, because it's a long show, and I really do appreciate you guys did, did a fantastic job of, uh, of uh, bringing up the issues about the social contract. I think just for the sake of people's sanity and comfort, uh, we should maybe pick it up next week, and uh, I'll try taking the... Uh, the opposite position so you guys can try arguing for the social contract and I'll try arguing against it and we can see but it's a tough argument to to overcome right I mean at least I think the position that I was taking was you know fluid and greasy and (laughs) and slimy and right I mean it's it's uh, it's truly um, what have we got here non falsifiable (laughs) right right um, so it's uh, you know it is like trying to punch fog, right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, so um, I uh, I made a number of logical fallacies and changed topics a huge number of times uh, to be truly evil and and evasive. And um, so I, I want to sort of point out what those were, but I think it would be worthwhile sitting on this and trying to come up with the counter arguments uh, because I think it'd be more fun then. Does that does that make sense for people? Does that make sense for people? We never forget the yeah, yeah. definition of what a contract is, let alone a social contract. Yeah, I kind of noticed that. And without the definition, I can make it be whatever the hell I want, right? It's voluntary. It's peaceful. It's violent. It's participatory. It's inflicted. It's, you know, it is whatever it needs to be to, to get through the next point. So um, next week, uh, we'll try switching sides. And I, uh, y- you guys can take on the cloak of infinite darkness. And um, uh, and I can try taking on the uh, uh, the um, the voluntarist position, and we can see uh, how it goes from there. How does it sound? Cool. Uh, how many people Sounds are fine. about yay close to an aneurysm? Any? Christina? <laughs> yes. Uh, excellent. Well, hopefully it'll be less frustrating next week. But I but this is what it's like to debate with somebody uh, who, about the social contract, isn't it? Don't you feel like you're just fighting a kind of fog? Uh, um, definitely, I felt that um, I was susceptible to being dragged along, like a do- you're like the dog on the my dog on the leash and just dragging me along the sidewalk, <laughs> right. you know, right. into non-falsifiable territory. It's like every every argument. Uh, it's like what happened in this thread. It was like a p- argumentative Ponzi scheme. You would introduce a new fallacy and more fallacies than I could fix, right? <laughs> and you know, and, and it really. What is, what right, but knowing, knowing when to stop that process and to back it up, I mean, this is why we need a boot camp, right? Because this stuff is really, really, really tough to argue. Uh, and, of course, it's a brain virus we've all been infected with, right? So it's like that uh, old ache when it rains if you're old and have arthritis, right? I mean, sorry, that's a metaphor not really appropriate to uh, you kids, except as a kid, right? But um, uh, it, it's really tough. Like, this is why I wanted to do this boot camp, because it's really tough to argue uh, these points. At least it certainly has been in my experience. So I think that um, seeing 
the pro side to the social contract, switching sides going for the, the, the anti-social contract side. And it's such an elemental debate. If you can't overcome the social contract, you can't argue for voluntarism, in my opinion, because people think it is voluntarism, right? So uh, I thought we could switch. We'll switch next week, and uh, uh, I'll try taking down the social contract and see, uh, see how it goes. Uh, and you guys can try uh, going for the, the pro side. What do you think? The well, just a quick point. Uh, I, I would like to argue that what what happened was not actually a debate because um, probably about 10, 15 minutes into this, um, it really didn't matter what any of the four of us were saying to you. You would just say whatever you wanted to get out of it or to avoid it or evade it or... Um, well, let's say, but sorry, let's well, say let's that say, that's true, though, but the reality is I got away with it, right? Right, because we continued arguing. Well, whatever you continue doing, I wasn't retracting points, right? And this is part of, of the boot camp thing, right, is that you have to corner people and get them to retract their points, right? So when, when Chewie said something about the media being controlled, I got him to retract that point, and not because, you know, I necessarily agree with that position, but just because if you can get someone to retract their points, then they lose face in the debate, because we're talking about a public debating situation here, right? So you want to create the appearance of being correct, and uh, so no matter, even if I was weaseling everything, and I was weaseling a hell of a lot, of course, the reality is that uh, I got away with it, and uh, in a public situation, I think that the uh, voluntarist position came off weaker than the, uh, because I didn't back down from any points, right? So... I think from that standpoint, well, that standpoint to... it's important to just know when to nail someone from that standpoint, right? Because if I never concede anything, I never concede won the debate just by appearance, right? Well, well, I'm just trying to compare compare that what you're saying and my my experience of today's debate with our the definition of debating that we established last week, and and I'm having a hard time fitting the two of them together. Well, sorry, did you mean because this was supposed to be the uh, the collaborative uh, style of debate rather than the chess style of debate? Well, that was the impression that I'd gotten that it would be more uh, um, co collaborative rather than um, adversarial. But, I mean, I'm happy with the adversarial if we want to go that route. But Well, well first of all, the adversarial well, is what you're most going to start with. The challenge is to turn it from adversarial into a collaborative debate. And until you can get me to concede some illogic, there's no way it's going to be collaborative because I will feel that you don't have anything to offer to my existing knowledge. Because I don't feel there's any because I don't feel so it just becomes see, me defending my position. If they if you can't chip away anything that I'm saying, I'm not saying nobody did, right? But if, if you can't get that across, if you can't get to me to concede, it's not going to become collaborative because I already know the truth, so to speak, and I'm trying to educate you if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that clarifies it. Thank you. Sure. All right. Well, thank you, guys. It's fantastic. I, I know that it's uh, frustrating. Uh, it's good for you to see uh, Evil Steph. Uh, he does a podcast called Freedom and Slavery. And uh, I hope that you will check it out at uh, uh, prostate.com. Uh, so, so thank you so much. Uh, I can't wait for me talking about the glories of the Judeo-Christian ethic and the wonders of democracy to show up in the next Freedom Aid Radio mixtape. Thank you so much. And uh, I will see you guys next week. Thanks.